It was the night before Christmas. God glanced over the earth. He looked to and fro over all its girth. They missed it again, he said with a sigh, a heavy heart and a tear in his eye. I gave them my son so they could be free. My greatest gift to them from me. They traded me in for a man in red, a little tree and a deer-drawn sled. How do I save them and make them see? My love is complete. My grace is free. How do I help them when all they know is a talking snowman and a box with a bow? Well, maybe next year they'll stop and see. The biggest gift of Christmas is the little child from me. So welcome to this uh, final one. I, I almost thought that Ian was going to say, Ian's going to finish you off. <laughs> the, final, the final message. It may feel like that, you never know. But welcome again to, to the, the final one in our Advent series. We've been through the valley, we've been through the wilderness, we've been in the storm with God, and now we're looking at, at, at Christmas with God. And we're going to look at one of the most amazing truths, the Emmanuel principle that leads us to the biggest question of all. What does it mean to say that Jesus was God with us because that's the cornerstone of our faith. And as we read the usual sort of well-known passages, it's easy to slip into a warm Christmas glow somehow and forget the raw and the painful issues that arose for those who were involved. And today I want to take you through the circumstances of the virgin birth and how it affected the world of Jesus, his parents and his family, which we often overlook. Uh, why the virgin birth matters in the story of our redemption and how it cements God's promise to be with us for all time. So let's look first at the world of Jesus, his parents and his family. It starts with the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, then a young teenager, barely out of puberty, who was already lined up to be married to a likely much older man uh, called Joseph. Now, if somebody starts a conversation now saying, now don't be frightened, you know it's not going to end well, don't you? You know it. And, and that's how this conversation starts. And Gabriel goes on to tell her that she's going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, that she'll bear the Messiah, the promised one of God. And we read in Luke 1, 34, that she was confused and disturbed and voices deep concern. To be perfectly honest with you, I think the way that we often read it hardly does justice to the emotion that must have been going on. It's a, what? What? She's not, you know, it's absolutely overwhelming. And maybe just a little bit of cultural deconstruction before we go any further. Uh, meanings of words change, and, and over recent years, and the apparent words that people say and what they mean uh, are, are become different, and I'm learning that from my teenage granddaughter just at the moment. So let's have a look at some of the words that you might have heard in this passage and how you might interpret them today. So if, if, if a girl says, or maybe anybody says, go ahead. Nowadays, that's not a permission. That's a dare. Seriously? She's given you opportunity to beat a retreat. Maybe? Absolutely no. That's okay. You're going to pay for this. Whatever, now you're in trouble. Wow. 
she's just amazed you could be so stupid. <laughs> but those phrases didn't mean the same then as they do now. And she asked the obvious question, but I'm a virgin. She must have been overwhelmed with fears of just how much trouble a pregnancy could cause her as a young yet unmarried teenager and her child. Because whilst first century Palestine was reasonably well-educated society, it was steeped in an honor and shame culture, which you'll have heard about elsewhere. And there was as much likelihood of her village family believing the story then as now. You know, you, you just imagine your teenage girl comes home, well, Dad, I'm pregnant. Oh, yeah. Oh, and God's made me pregnant. Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> you can just imagine uh, the scene. And in Jewish custom, engagement was all but being married. And you could only cancel betrothal by a divorce. So if Mary became pregnant, Joseph had three options. He could either accept the baby as being his, quietly divorce her, or kick up a lot of fuss which could well result in her being stoned. And it wasn't just Joseph's views that mattered. What about those of the families, outraged people? that this girl has brought such shame upon them. It had been so much easier for Joseph to say, well, all right, maybe the child is mine, rather than to hold on to a dubious story if it wasn't true. And references in John and Mark demonstrate that those claims about Joseph's, Jesus' birth being miraculous were actually disbelieved by most Jews. Hardly anybody believed it. And Jesus suffered continual abuse as a result of that uh, throughout his ministry. My own mother was conceived out of wedlock in 1919. And my grandmother was sent to live with a relative away from the village where they lived. And in those days, that's what usually happened. The mother would then return with the baby. And often her mum would claim it as her own to save scandal. And that probably happened with my own grandmother, who was apparently born, if you believe the records, when her mother was over 50. But she was very, very close to an older sister. And so here, young Mary is sent to live with relative Elizabeth for her own safety whilst all the fuss calmed down. It will not have been an easy journey. Nazareth to South Jerusalem where Elizabeth lived was about 90 miles. Now I remember the early months of Val's pregnancy. Any slight jolt of, you know, the head was out the window in the car. It was just a nightmare. And here in the early stages of pregnancy, this girl has to sit on a donkey and either walk or be carried on the, for 90 miles. Just think about that. 90 miles when you're in the early parts of pregnancy. It will not have been fun. However, Elizabeth had also quite remarkably become pregnant as well. Uh, just after three months, Mary had to go back home again. Same 90 miles, same up and down in the donkey, very pregnant and having to face everyone back home. And as all this was going on, Joseph had a visit from the angel too. And Matthew tells us that Joseph was a good man. He was inclined to take the gentle option of divorce. So firstly, the angel tells him that he shouldn't be afraid to take Mary as his wife. She's not been playing fast and loose. And the baby in conceived, is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Big truth number one, 
you don't have to understand what's going on to buy into God's plan. Most people have to go one step at a time. And God took Joseph one step at a time. We'd be scared if we knew all that God had in store for us. In fact, as the story moves on, Joseph never gets any answers to the questions that must have been going round and round in his head. Who? God with us? How can that be? A baby? What difference is that going to make to my life, to my family? Where's this all going to take place? What's going to happen? And what about, how is he going to take up this role as a Messiah? What's it going to work out? And how, 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 how what, 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 what? You can just imagine. And Joseph never gets any answers to those. He has to go on, one step at a time. Don't let uncertainty stop you from following God's will for your life. Even if it's clouded with uncertainty, that you don't know what's going on, because that's the essence of faith. So Joseph decides to stick with Mary. And just to make it harder, a census is called. And everybody then has to trail back to their family birthplace. And Joseph was a descendant of King David, who was born in Bethlehem. So they had to go back another arduous journey with the whole family to make their way to Bethlehem. And it was just about 100 miles. Just imagine trailing backwards and forwards with all these relatives who didn't believe a word of it. And David had a lot of descendants. And you can imagine the impact of the huge numbers all arriving at the village to stay with family. And the story makes it clear that when they arrived at their family accommodation, it was Mary and Joseph that were put downstairs in the stable of the house, which probably looked something like this. So why were the people, you know, the special people pregnant, you know, sort of mums would normally look after their daughters. Why are they stuffed downstairs in, in, in the stable? Honor and shame. Honor and shame. Luke specifically says in chapter 2, verse 5, that by the time Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary still hadn't become formally married. Although Matthew tells us in, in 124 that after an angelic appearance, he took Mary home to live as his wife, but he didn't actually have sex with her until after Jesus was born. And it's presumed that a formal marriage would have taken place sometime after Jesus' birth, probably in Nazareth, but where everyone will have known the scandal of his birth. And Jews at the time of Jesus uh, took their father's name as their surname. And Matthew's genealogy pointedly does not list Joseph as Jesus' father. And his list of disciples names many of their fathers, a pattern continually seen in Jewish literature. And those surnames will be kept after the deaths of their father. But we read in John 8.41 that one heckler one time interrupted Jesus' preaching by shouting out, what the gossips were all saying, at least we're not illegitimate. Although I very much doubt that that was the actual word that it was used colloquially. You could almost hear the sharp intake of breath. So why is this claim, which caused so much anxiety and hassle to Joseph and Mary and embarrassment to Jesus, why is it so important? Because this truth is central to the story of God's redemption. Jesus was not just a great man, because as a man, he could never have been perfect. He would always 
have to sacrifice for his own sins before he could carry the sins of the world. If he'd been merely a man, he'd have died for his own sins, not for ours. So why is it crucial that he was fully God and fully man? And we need to get our heads around some core truth. Jesus was not a sort of composite, half God and half man, a sort of God by his father and human by his mother. Had that been so, he'd have carried his mother's sinful genes and nature and again would have died for his own sins, not ours. And some say that he wasn't really a man either. He was just a spirit with a sort of clothing of flesh and, bo and bones. In that case, he could never have walked with us and would never be able to sympathize with us. A scientific explanation now might be that Jesus was implanted into the womb as a complete and fertilized embryo to grow within a womb. But even then, in the womb, he was never less than fully God. Can you imagine this? The God of the universe as an embryo. There's a carol that we sometimes sing. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensively made man. How can we get our heads around that? It, it's just an incredible truth. And God, and Jesus was implanted in Mary as the complete, perfect human being that God had intended from the beginning. A second Adam, if you like, and that's how Paul describes him. But at the same time, in Paul in Colossians, describes him as God made visible. Never less than fully human, never less than fully God. And that's why this little phrase, conceived of the Holy Spirit, is so important. It leads to the phrase, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One will be called the Son of God. And these are glorious truths and the crucial foundation for our salvation because without the virgin birth, there would be no salvation. So what are the implications of the virgin birth for us today? We all, many of us, uh, will we be aware of the passage in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 5, which refer to Jesus being despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we tend to think that these verses just relate to his crucifixion and Easter. But it's more than that. Because the continuing questioning of his parentage was a scandal that he bore with all those that had been falsely branded with disapproval, moral disapproval, for suffering, for something outside of their control. For those people who don't know who their parents are for rape victims, for those forever damaged by child abuse, for those who've got some physical or emotional or mental challenges. Because by standing with us, he knows in those situations, he shared that suffering. He shared our pain. And he redeemed every aspect of our fallen humanity so that he could represent and redeem everyone. It's awesome news. And maybe there's stuff in your life that causes you great hurt, stuff that you can't do anything about, it's happened to you. And Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tested 
and tried in every way we can imagine so that he can be a great high priest before God. He's uniquely qualified to represent us and understand us because he knows our pain. He knows your pain. And through that, he's uniquely qualified to bring joy to your world every day. So as we pull things together, today's focus on the virgin birth tells of a Jesus who came at great personal cost, both to him and to those round about him, to redeem us from our fears, from our failings, and to present us faultless before God as we turn to him. And even more than that, because Jesus is fully God, that's why he can be Emmanuel, God with us always, and not just at Christmas. And I want to close this message really by reminding you of some of the truths of that that which I started this little series last month. Passages which emphasize the Emmanuel principle of God with us in every circumstance of our life. Because throughout history, the voice of God resounds with absolute assurance, I am with you. And it unfolds before us in breathtaking detail through the experience of countless individuals and families and tribes and cities and nations and generations and it unfolds in us too. So here in Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling shall be with them and I shall be their God and they shall be my people. It's a permanent statement of God's intent. So here too to Isaac at the beginning of his journey with God and it's a promise to all of us who are just starting a journey with God who so are new to this, do not be afraid for I am with you and I will bless you. That's in Genesis 26, 26. And here to Jacob, when his own devious behavior to kill his, to, to, to his brother had created a huge family risk, lift, rift even, and Esau wanted to kill him. And God says, I'm with you and I'll keep you wherever you go. This is a verse for those people that have messed up. And Joshua, I will be with you as I was with Moses. Passing on a few generations, this promise to Moses was repeated to Joshua. And it spread beyond a family to a nation as they learned to proclaim God's promise for them. A promise to everyone who's had a call to service. And to new King David, do all that you have in mind, for God is with you. You're in a new role, a new job, a new purpose. God is with you. And Isaiah 41, 9 to 10, do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not be afraid, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you, I will uphold you. This was to the people of Israel under threat of, from the Babylonians. And if you're ever under threat in a time of need, do not fear. For I'm with you. And to Jeremiah, called to a task he didn't want to do, which would cause him great inconvenience, distress, suffering. He probably saw his family killed in front of his nose. Do not be afraid of them, for I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Are you stuck with a call that frankly you wish you didn't have? Well, this is for you.
And then another promise. This is in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The prophet of Zephaniah is all about judgment. It's about a people that have messed up. And if you're in a situation where your sin has left, led you into tough times of God's discipline, this is about for you. That whilst God disciplines, he also loves and cares and rejoices over you. And to the disciples, his final words, Jesus, these were the last recorded words of Jesus. And when people get to choose their last words, they're always significant. And these are Jesus' last words to his disciples. Remember, I'm with you forever, even to the end of the age. It wasn't just that Jesus' name was Emmanuel. He was Emmanuel. And again, to an individual, this is to Paul. Don't be afraid, but speak. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. No one will lay a hand on you to harm you, for there are many in this city who are my people. That's at a time to Paul when he's under threat of being murdered. And Revelation, ultimately to all God's people for all time. See, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. So over and over again, we have this played out in the Bible. In fact, when you count the number of occasions, there's hardly any circumstances of your life and mine when God doesn't promise to be with you. Awesome promise that God himself would want to be with me. Does that get you? Does that get you? Words fall short somehow of explaining or describing it. But somehow let your soul grasp the enormity. <coughs> your God wants to do life with you. And this divine assurance thunders down through the ages. And it's an invitation. And it's the unifying center of the Bible. And every story in the Bible, no matter its twists and turns, is built on this clarion call to relationship. I am with you. Will you be with me? And this morning isn't just about seeking your intellectual acquiescence to a set of beliefs, if you like. It's about showing you that God himself wants a relationship with you. To go with you. And he wants you to willingly follow where he leads. Not like a reluctant child being dragged through the store. We've all been there, haven't we? Willingly. And the story of scripture comes as an invitation and as a gift. God has given us the freedom to choose. He's given us his power to change and he's given us an opportunity to walk in trust with God himself so the question this morning is God is with you will you choose to accept the gift and be with him you may say I've never thought about this before I didn't actually realize that I could experience God's redemption for myself or experience his presence with me day by day. 
but I'd like to. And you can. You might pray a prayer. Something like this. Lord, I just come before you. I recognize my need. I recognize my need of my sins being taken away. I recognize a need for my life to be changed. Lord, I want to walk with you. Will you walk with me? Lord, I commit my life to you. You have all my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you promised me yours. Amen. Listen to this song. Just stay seated and listen to the words. Let them dwell in your heart.